Well, Palm Sunday is the day we begin Holy Week, and so much happens in this one week. On Palm Sunday, Jesus was made king. He was recognized as king. He was coronated the same week he ends with Jesus on a cross by Friday, buried all throughout Saturday, and risen with an empty tomb on Sunday, all within one week. Palm Sunday leads to Good Friday, which eventually leads to Easter Sunday, the empty tomb. What we see here is Jesus' coronation. Uh, Not literally, coronation means to be given a crown, but the day that Jesus is recognized as a king. Uh, A very important day, of course, for most kings to be recognized as king. Usually a coronation is filled with pomp and circumstance, right? It's filled with lots of arrogance and, you know, sort of magnificence and so forth. When Charlemagne, uh, otherwise known as Charles the Great, um, was coronated, he was the eldest son of Pepin the Short, uh, not the guy from Shrek, different guy, but Pepin the Short, he was an ancestor of royal houses of Europe. He became king of the Franks, of the French in 768 then king of the Lombards in 774, and then most notably in the year 800, he became the first Holy Roman Emperor. He was called the Father of Europe. He began what is sometimes called the Carolingian Renaissance. He was crowned emperor with lots of pomp and circumstance by Pope Leo III on Christmas Day of all days. And where in St. Peter's Basilica, where he entered in, supposedly not knowing that he'd become the Holy Roman Emperor that day. He most certainly did know. And when he walked in, there was a bejeweled crown sitting on the altar as he was made king. He was married four times. A coronation fitting for a king. Or a few hundred years later, let's look at Ivan Vasilyevich in Russia. Ivan, similarly, was the son of a ruler, the son of Vasily III, the ruler of the Grand Duchy of Moscow. He was appointed Grand Prince of Moscow in 1533 at the age of three, three years old. Uh, He became the first Moscow ruler, but eventually became the Tsar of all Russia in the year 1547 when he was 16 years old, a little older. Uh, The Chosen Council, that's what it was called, uh, united around the young Ivan declaring him to be the czar of all of Russia. Ivan transformed Russia from a medieval state to an empire. He was married eight times. Now with Ivan, he consolidated his power by going to war quickly. He got rid himself of the chosen council that put him in power. He started the Livonian War, uh, consolidated power, ravaged Russia, Um, He gained this sort of autocratic control over all of Russia's nobility, whom he violently purged with public executions and confiscation of their property. His entire reign was marked by violence and eventually the burning of Moscow. And he's forever known in history as Ivan the Terrible. (laughs) Imagine that being your designation. But when we look at Jesus' coronation, what do we see? It's characterized by humility, by service, by sacrifice. That's our king. Look with me at Mark 11. 
1 through 10, actually all four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, mention what's called the triumphal entry, the day that Jesus is recognized to be king. We're going to look at Mark's gospel and the first 10 verses of chapter 11. We read this. Jesus is the king of kings. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing? untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This is the word of the Lord, and may God add his blessing to the reading, the the study, the application of his word this morning. Here's where we're going. Jesus is the sovereign king. He's the sovereign king, verses 1 through 6. And then uh, verses 7 through 8, Jesus is the humble king. And then finally, 9 and 10, Jesus is the saving king. He's the saving king. So first, he's the sovereign king. Uh, just to kind of set the, the context here, Jesus comes to Jerusalem. Um, the majority of Jesus' ministry takes place in Galilee. All right, anything important in Israel, in the eyes of the world at least, would take place in Jerusalem in the southern region. Galilee is in the north. It's sort of the unimportant backwood part of Israel. Very simple, lowly by comparison. Jesus, almost his entire ministry and life is spent in Galilee. Very, very seldom is he even in Jerusalem. He goes there for certain feasts and so forth. But almost all his entire ministry is spent in the north. In fact, he's raised in a town called Nazareth. I'm sure you know that. Basically an unknown town. If Jesus was not raised there, we would not know the name Nazareth today. Ironically, there is less than four miles away from Nazareth, a major, fairly major city, probably the most major city in Galilee called Sephoris. Sephoris is not even mentioned in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? God's priorities are so different than ours. Nazareth, this little backwoods town, becomes the center where Jesus is risen. Uh, Jesus raised, sorry. Uh, Jesus then comes to Jerusalem um, for the first time. So kind of picture this in your mind. Jesus has become the most popular person in Israel by far. He's the miracle worker. His teaching is controversial, yet crowds, huge crowds of thousands and thousands of people gather to hear him, to hear him teach, to receive his miracles. And finally now, Jesus, the most popular rabbi, teacher in all of Israel, is coming to Jerusalem, the most important city in all of Israel. Jerusalem was at one point just a small military fortress, but it had become a metropolis. Uh, not Rome, but still pretty large city. Um, it had a temple in it. That was its most notable feature that could rival any temple in the ancient world uh, because it was rebuilt by Ezra, and read that in the Old Testament, but Herod the Great, who's not even Jewish, 
Herod the Great adorned the temple, expanded the temple, made it something truly magnificent, even in the eyes of the ancient world. And here Jesus, with his disciples, finally arrives publicly into Jerusalem. And he shows himself to be the sovereign king. Uh, So before he even enters the city, he's standing on the Mount of Olives. Um, You can stand there today. I've stood there. A number of us have. Uh, You can see all of the city of Jerusalem, the walls and everything, the Dome of the Rock, which was not there back in the first century. But you can see it all while standing on the Mount of Olives. That's where Jesus is with his disciples. And he sends two of his disciples in to do a task. Go into a village nearby, so not yet into the big city, and you're going to find a colt tied up. No one has ever ridden on it. I want you to untie it. I want you to bring it back to me. Tell them we'll bring it back immediately when we're done. They go and they do it. It happens exactly the way they said. They go walk in. The first colt they see tied up, they untie it. The owner comes out, assumedly the owner, and says, what are you doing taking my colt? (laughs) And they say, the Lord has need of it. They say, okay, you can take it. What's the point of this little story before we actually come to the triumphal entry? Why all this importance, all these little details given to this little story? I think because it shows the sovereignty of our king. Uh, Kings are supposed to be sovereign, right? Uh, In fact, the word sovereign, literally in the English, is another word used for a king or a queen, a person who is in royal authority. Now, what happens here, did Jesus plan this? Or was it miraculous? And, you know, there's the commentators certainly debated on this. He could have planned it in very natural means. He could have visited the town at some point without the disciples really knowing. He could have sent a letter. He could have arranged the fact that somebody has a cult that he needs to use. And he talked to him and and sort of made an arrangement for it. But if that's the case, if he just used natural means to do this, why even include it? What's the point of going into such detail of a story that Jesus could have just done like any one of us could have done? I mean, I could go, I'm sure, find a place to rent a donkey for a few hours, right? I think it has the smell of the miraculous here. That Jesus has spiritually prepared this cult, this owner of the cult, maybe through a vision or something like that, that the day will come when the Lord will need this donkey, this young donkey, let him use it. It demonstrates to the disciples that this whole thing is under his control, under, under his sovereign hand. It's been planned. It's been purposed. There is an intention behind all of it. It's God's will being worked out. Not just for this, but for the events that happen later on in Holy Week. His betrayal. The kangaroo court that's set up to declare him guilty. His desertion. By his disciples, the crucifixion and the ultimate resurrection are entirely within the plan and the purpose of God. Jesus is the sovereign king. He's sovereign over our lives. He is sovereign over the big stuff. (laughs) The big stuff of our lives. The day you were born. uh, Who you were going to marry. Uh, how many kids you're going, you had, uh, your calling and job in life, the church that you're going to be part of, the day that you're going to die. God is sovereign over all of those things. And he's sovereign over the small stuff. So not just the big stuff, uh, the small stuff, like where you tie up your cult, right? And the first cult that people will see as you walk into a small village and so forth. Because the small stuff makes up the big stuff. 
right? I once heard someone that was a professor argue that God is only sovereign over the big stuff, not over the small stuff. He doesn't care whether you have a ham sandwich for lunch or a turkey sandwich for lunch. It makes no difference. And uh, one person in the class raised their hand and said, well, what if the ham sandwich is poisoned? Um, and that ends up determining the day of your death. Then is he in control, right? So it's the small stuff that makes up the big stuff of our lives. He's in control of all of it. And friends, when we look at life, it sometimes seems so chaotic, so out of control. What a reminder to us that God is sovereign. It's like Holy Week. Going through it for the disciples, it seems totally chaotic. They feel abandoned. It's only in hindsight that they begin to see the good and the sovereign hand of God providing for them. Same is true of our lives. We, we see God's will so much better in hindsight. Sometimes even in hindsight we don't understand it, right? We, we, we need heaven's perspective. But we can at least see it a little better after we go through it and we see, ah, oh, that's what God was doing. I heard an illustration before. It's been around, but it's so helpful, of a tapestry. When you look at the backside of a tapestry, you see what? Knots and just strings hanging out and it looks totally and completely chaotic. It's only when you get the other side, the other perspective, that you see the beauty that's being knit together. That's true of our lives as well. Going through it, it may not seem so clear. Why does God allow one thing? Why did this happen to happen the way it did and so forth? Only from heaven's perspective do we begin to see the good and providing hand of God. Trust in a sovereign king. He's not out of control, he's in control. As everyone else is sort of playing checkers, right? The religious leaders, Pharisees, even the disciples don't know what's going on. Judas and his willingness to betray Jesus. In a sense, Jesus is playing chess. He's got a different goal, a different intention in mind through the whole thing. He's the sovereign king, but more than that, seven through eight, he's the humble king. He's the humble king. This is probably the most obvious thing about his triumphal entry. His kingship is marked by humility. The disciples return from the village. They do exactly what Jesus says. It happens exactly as he said it would. And he is ready to ride, ready to make his entry into Jerusalem. Uh, they lay their cloaks on the colt, sort of a, a makeshift sh- a saddle. Um, no gold-plated, diamond-encrusted leather saddle, right? Just cloaks, robes, thrown on top of this colt. Um, Then they lay cloaks on the road, as well as the crowds as he's coming in. Some people cut branches, leafy branches. Of course, that's where we get Palm Sunday from the palm branches. And that's sort of their way of, of laying out the red carpet, right? For Jesus, he is the king. And in doing so, of course, he is fulfilling prophecy. Um, in Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, in this case, you could say Jesus did perhaps intentionally ride a colt into Jerusalem, knowing that it was fulfilling scripture. He wants people to see that he is indeed the king. But he's a king that comes in humility. First of all, he rides a colt. What is a colt? It's a young horse or a young animal in the horse family. Uh, of course, we know it's a donkey. It's a, the foal of a donkey. It's a young donkey. And notice it's borrowed. He doesn't even own this donkey. 
Jesus says the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, right? He's going from place to place. He says to the owner, I'll bring it back immediately. And assumedly, of course, the disciples did bring it back immediately. And even a donkey itself is not a majestic, impressive animal comparatively, right? Um, this is not a war horse. Uh, that would be a very different symbol being spoken by Jesus or being sort of symbolized by Jesus riding in on a war horse. Not a camel, a rich man's animal, not an elephant from the far east, not a chariot. Jesus didn't use some miracle to sort of fly in, right? He rides in on a donkey. It's not surprising, it fits his whole life. Born in a manger, a carpenter and the son of a carpenter. He had no title, no formal education, no position of power in this world. He's come to serve. A king without pomp and pride and the magnificence of this world. A very different king than we're used to. His only crown is a crown of thorns. Friends, rejoice in a humble king. History is filled with prideful kings. There are a dime a dozen. The Bible has them. Nebuchadnezzar, Xerxes, right? Even around Jesus' day, you had Alexander the Great a few hundred years before him. You had the Caesars living in Rome in huge palaces. Even as I mentioned, Herod the Great. These great and mighty kings. He built the temple. By the way, Herod was also known for killing kids on the day of Jesus' birth. The Emperor Qin, Q-I-N, it's pronounced, built the Great Wall of China. Legend has it that as he was building the Great Wall, well, he himself, his servants were building the Great Wall. He ran out of mortar at one point and instead began to use the blood and guts of his very servants to continue the job. Ivan, as we mentioned, a czar of absolute power and what becomes terrible, massacring his own people. But here's the king of kings who comes to serve who love his people, who knows them by name. The assumption is pretty clear, friends. If we follow his example, we are called to be humble as well. If God gives us any level of authority, we use it to serve. We serve the humble king and we follow him in humility. In 9 and 10, Jesus is the saving king. The saving king. As he comes in, the crowds praise him. Now you've got to understand, Jerusalem was filled with people at this time. It's a big city in general, but this is during Passover. And during the Pascha feast, it swells up to, they say, close to a million people. Pilgrims gathering in to celebrate the Passover, uh, coming even from Galilee. So even there in the north, a million people back then would be an extraordinarily large amount of people in the city of Jerusalem. All visiting, they gather, they've heard about Jesus, the great miracle worker and great teacher. They're shouting, Hosanna! And Hosanna means, save us! Save us! And that sort of ending, nah, is sort of, save us now, Lord! Save us now! Save us from the oppression of the Romans. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Those are clear messianic 
terms. In other words, they believe him to be the Messiah. And Jesus has given every indication at this point that he really is the Messiah, riding in on a donkey and receiving their praise. Hosanna in the highest. They recognize him to be king who has come to save them. Jesus is the saving king. Now, they're not wrong. He really is the king. He's, but he's more than just the king of the Jews, right? He's more than that. He's the king of humanity. He's the king of kings. He's the king who is Lord over all. He's the king, but not as they think. He didn't come to save them from Roman oppression. He's come to save us, all of us, from our sin. There is something that we need more than military victory or political savvy. Something that is more important than economic opportunity or lower taxes or even protection. Something more basic and fundamental. In fact, if that was true, if that's all that Jesus was really about, we would not be here today celebrating him. (laughs) He'd be someone you would have learned about in history class and not talked about in churches. He's the savior. He's the king, but he's a king like no other. Like no president or prime minister or Putin or President Xi or whoever you want to mention. He's come to rescue us from sin and transform us from within. His goal is different. His goal is to change everything. Our greatest need is a savior. The rest of it, friends, is simply moving the furniture around the room. What he's come to deal with is eternity. That's what we've been learning from Romans, those who've been Romans with us here in the spring, or winter into the spring. The gospel, Palm Sunday must lead to Good Friday, or it really doesn't matter. And Good Friday, of course, must lead to Easter Sunday. I just encourage you who are here, do you know Jesus Christ as your King and as your Savior? The King of King, Kings invites you to make him your king. The one who died to redeem you, to save you, to make you his very own. Jesus is the king of kings. Today we celebrate Jesus as king. And no doubt, he is indeed Messiah, Christ, and king. He rules with absolute and complete authority. He's sovereign, but he uses that authority to serve. He has all the reason to be proud and pompous, but he comes gentle and lowly. He had all the rights and the privileges of royalty, but he lays them down to save us. He is a king like no other, the sovereign, humble, and saving king who came to sacrifice himself. I mentioned checkers versus chess. I'm a big chess guy. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this before, but the greatest chess game ever played, arguably, because that's debatable, right, was by a 13-year-old boy, chess prodigy by the name of Bobby Fischer. And he played what was perhaps one of his first uh, real tests against a master-level opponent by the name of Donald Byrne. He played in Rosenwald Memorial Tournament, at the Marshall Chess Club in New York City. This was October 17th, 1956. It was called the Game of the Century. 
And uh, if you don't know anything about Bobby Fischer, Bobby Fischer went on to be probably, perhaps, the greatest chess player in, to ever play the game of chess. In fact, Bobby Fischer is an American. During the Cold War, he played the Russians. Now, if you don't know anything about Russians, Russians love chess. Like, it's, our kids play basketball and, and baseball, their kids play chess, right? That's kind of what it is in Russia. During the Cold War, he goes to Russia, wins the world championship beating the Russians, and then entirely disappears from the public eye. Nobody even knows where he is at. He reappears, in fact, the following year, he forfeits his championship because no one knows where he's at. He reappears years later, rematches the champion, beats him again, and disappears (laughs) from the public eye. But what made this particular game so impressive was the way in which he won. He used a very rare tactic. In chess, it's not the king, it's the queen that has all the power, right? He used the tactic of the queen's sacrifice, intentionally giving up the most powerful piece on the board to beat his opponent and achieve a checkmate. Our king, Jesus, rode into Jerusalem, knowing full well what the crowd that day did not understand that as the king, his win would be through the ultimate sacrifice of his life to redeem us and make us his own forever. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Father, thank you so much for your son, Jesus, who has come to save us from our sins. Thank you, Lord, that we have such a glorious king who loves us and who knows us each by name, who cares about us. Lord, even in our sin, yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, for those here who may not know the Lord Jesus, maybe this would be the day, Palm Sunday of 2022, that they would meet the King, the true King, the King of Kings, who loves us, who died for us, who welcomes us and invites us. And for those here who know Jesus, and maybe have known Jesus for decades, maybe this would be the Sunday that we just celebrate, rejoice, delight in our King as we await the day we will one day be with you. In Jesus we pray. Amen.